Welcome back to the podcast, and this week we have the pleasure again of being with Ben Williams. And last week we talked pastoral calling, we talked about uh, what it means to know that God is pulling you into ministry, whether that's vocational or whether that's just uh, serving the church and kind of the whole anatomy of what it looks like to know that God is calling you to something. God is entrusting you with something. And, and confessed what, our undying love to Eugene Peterson. And we did. Yeah. We, we, yeah. we talked about that moment where you discover what pastoring <laughs> is all about, usually when you read Eugene yeah. Peterson. That's right. So uh, one of the things I wanted to ask you about, though, is so you're getting a Ph.D. in apologetics. Yes. And apologetics, you know, I've always kind of seen apologists as like the warlords of the Christian faith, no offense to my pacifist friends uh, in, in, in <laughs> traditions. But, uh, you know, that's really seen as like the front lines of mm. engagement, evangelism, um, you know, the people that are out there standing on the cooler, you know, arguing. And mm. obviously we all probably have different conceptions of that. But one of the things I wanted you to walk us through is once you start to read a little bit in the apologetic literature, you realize that not all apologetics is created equal. Yeah. There are actually different kinds of apologetics uh, than, than what you might think. So let's just start out. Tell us a little bit about maybe the landscape of apologetics, okay. and then we can maybe dive in after that. So, I mean, I'm sure someone could give you a much more rigorous and detailed set of categories because there's lots of subspecies. But in, in my mind, the two basic frameworks is, is one that's going to build from evidence upward towards Christ uh, or towards theism or whatever your end goal is, with the goal being persuasion of the individual mind that the Christian worldview principle story, fill in the blank there, is uh, coherent, is reasonable, and is demonstrable based on any set of uh, evidence-based assumptions you want. So if you want science, I can bring you science. You mm-hmm. want history, I'll bring you history. You want the Bible to be the best piece of literature, I'm going to show you literature. And so that different camps in that of how you approach it, but you, you, the individual convertee, uh, gets to set the groundwork for what classes of evidence are acceptable, and then I'm going to meet you there. Yeah. Okay. Um, the other major camp would be um, from the other end of things that ultimately uh, conversion is a work of God and uh, is it it Karl Barth who talks about just flinging the gospel at people that you just kind of (laughs) you just set it out there and that there is a it's actually a danger of letting the person in the conversion process set the parameters for the discussion Mm -hmm. that if they say this is the evidence I'll accept then um, you catering to that uh, is letting them pick which window God's going to crawl through sure. into their lives. And, and, and I, there is definitely a point. I think both camps have a lot to say that is valuable and needs to be listened to. As, as is usually in polemic, both camps just hit each over the head a lot and don't yeah. get a lot done. But both have a, a very legitimate point uh, that I do think a human-centric mode of apologetics that says essentially whatever state of fallenness and sin you're in I can get the gospel there um, may not be the right way to drive that conversation Mm -hmm. Uh, on the other hand I I do see apologetics especially historically if you go back to what is apologetics in second century right it's it's not even what we would think of but Mm -hmm. it's evangelism that it, it was the task of Oh, so you're Jewish. Let me make a case for you. Right. Uh, oh, so you're pagan, Celsus, whoever. You know, here's here's the case for that. And so there there is a sense in which we do try to at least tear down barriers. Mm-hmm. That if, if I'm going to meet you where you are with the gospel. Yeah. I'm going to meet you where you are with whatever set of evidence. Probably, and this this may be just a great starting place. Um, the maybe the test case for the two major camps is how do you view Paul at, at Athens? Yeah. If you think that is a model for what you're supposed to do. Yeah. So Paul goes into Athens and he preaches his sermon and he doesn't quote any Old Testament scripture, which is his shtick. That's his thing. Yeah. And instead he's quoting Greek poets. He's quoting books about Zeus. Yeah. And saying, well, we've read this. He is not far from every one of us and him we move and have our being. And 
uh, has mixed results, right? It, it's, right. It, it not it, at the end of the story, he gets to the resurrection, and people aren't thrilled with that. Right. But there are some people that are. Okay. Right. Uh, if you think instead that was an utter failure, and is recorded in Scripture as a learning experience for Paul, where when you see him and later on he's not doing that anymore, mm-hmm. then you probably fall into that that second camp we talked about. Yeah. And I think that's the case. Uh, that is a good way if you want to assess someone let me tell you this story from Paul and you tell me what you think about it I'll probably tell you what kind of apologist you are that's great I've actually not heard that before that's a really nice lens to look at that through and you, you do hear that and it is revelatory you know I I'll never forget the first time I heard somebody say that Paul failed in Athens mm-hmm. in Acts 17. That this is an example of what you don't do. Absolutely. You know, it's, kind of like, it's like the it's it's the Christian apologetics version of like we don't negotiate with terrorists. Like, <laughs> I mean, it's like There's you see what, about it. You see what happened with Paul, we don't we do we that. Don't That's do. not what we yeah. do. And that thought had never occurred to me before because I thought what he was doing was great. And and you're right, it does reveal kind of those two sides to apologetics and Probably, like you said, a lot of times in, when it comes to discussions of between different kinds of apologetics, it's a lot of talking past each other. It's a lot of talking about the worst in each other. Yeah. Um, whereas I do think there's value. I'll tell you, I'm I'm always skeptical of evidentialism mm-hmm. for for a reason that you mentioned, and that is if we allow the secular culture, the worldly person, you know, however we want to frame this, mm-hmm. to go ahead and construct the parameters for our discussion, then why do we believe at the end of the day that even if we make the best case possible, we're actually going to move them from doubt to belief? Yeah. So I think, and this is probably where if you're an evidentialist, if you're somebody who really, really this is your bread and butter. I'm not sure you believe this. I mean, this may be the worst version of your argument, but the hang up for me is you don't argue someone into belief. There's actually something fundamentally different that happens when you go from non-believer to believer. So you could actually knock down every defeater and, 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 and make your case and go onto their own terms and show them um, all the evidence that they should believe, but you can't really make them believe. You can remove obstacles, but at the end of the day, you can't convert them. And I think one of the things that kind of changed for me is if you punt on that, if you if you get out of the evidentialist game altogether, you're tacitly making the assumption that there are areas of knowledge that are not within God's realm of sovereignty. So a Probably to me, the strongest version of evidentialist apologetics would be all truth is God's truth. And in some ways, what what we're doing with with apologetics is not necessarily just evangelism. It's also subduing the earth. It's also the cultural mandate mandate of saying there is not a single realm of knowledge that is off limits to Christians who are thinking to dialogue, to God's sovereignty in the world. And so we... I'm a Kuiper man. You'll, you'll like Cooper now. He's all about not a square inch over which Jesus does not say mine. That's right. Sphere sovereignty. Yeah. I'm all about that. And I, I think when you view evidentialist apologetics, maybe not being 100% that, because I still do want to re- leave some room for, for yeah. evangelism. But I want to say, if we think about evidentialism in the sense that you're not just trying to argue people into belief, yeah. you're trying to bring the entire mind, all of the culture, all of knowledge under the umbrella of the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. It's a lot more appealing to me that way. Yeah. Uh, the the godfather of all things apologetics for you and I, uh, the one and only Jim Beard, <laughs> loves to quote... Uh, uh, bringing every thought and imagination captive. Yeah. And the idea of capturing, uh, and it's one of the love affairs I have with C.S. Lewis, is, is capturing the imagination. Sure. Uh, I want your fiction to belong to Christ. I want your poetry to belong to Christ. I want your art to belong to Christ. Mm-hmm. I want your view of politics to belong to Christ. Uh, yeah. yeah and, and yeah, I want your science to belong to Christ. Uh, Lewis has a fantastic essay um, it's either eulogy of a great myth or funeral of a great myth. I forget now. But anyway, he makes the case that um, every every age gets the science it wants. Hmm. And that uh, before you get modern naturalistic evolutionary theory, 
you get Wagner and Keats and the the gods overcoming the Titans and that strain of of progress and development in literature and art and music and opera precedes the science. Yeah. So that there was a waiting audience for it. Right. Uh, so the there is a connection. Science is not the standalone sphere that just bubbles around out there. Mm-hmm. We know it's connected to the human human imagination. Mm-hmm. I'm reading um, Popper right now. Yeah, and, yeah. He, and he's all about you know science. It's not even inductive. It's it's deductive from yeah, these simply, intuitive leaps. Simply to, falsifiability. Yeah. Uh, but it, it, it is complicated. It's not just this ball in the air. And uh, when you start thinking about that, well, yeah, Christ needs to be able to speak into every area that we try to say this is the magisterium of, of science or of man or whatever. So I do think that's really important. I think it's important to, well, okay, so I have to word this carefully. All right, my, my Wesleyanism will come out now. Uh, while we never want to take away from God the glory of salvation um, because human will participates in it. Uh, it makes sense to play whack-a-mole with human excuses. Mm. Um, and so I think that's that's a valid exercise as yeah. long as you don't believe that you're ever going to hit the last mole. I mean, you right. can't, you can't whack-a-mole somebody into creation or into Christianity. It can't be. Right. Uh, and that, that's where I feel like the strength of, of presuppositionalism comes to play the ancient Christian saying, faith seeking understanding. Mm-hmm. So if you reorient kind of the board and you say, okay, if we're going to start with belief, yeah. not unfounded belief, not, you know, unreasonable belief, but let's, let's start with belief and then move our way towards understanding. In some ways there's an overlap here. And this is where honestly, I get lost between whether or not we're being Vantillian presuppositionalist, whether we're being evidentialist, but if we're going to move from our faith in Christ and we're going to try to understand the universe, in that sense, we're still taking every thought captive, but we're moving from a Christian framework outward, as opposed to the way I typically see evidentialism done is the outward towards Christ, like you mentioned earlier. So if we try to say faith seeking understanding, when we're doing apologetics that way, I view it a lot more as uh, kind of tearing down obstacles to faith, working through doubts, um, beginning to doubt our doubts, even after we've accepted Christ, and using apologetics in that sense to understand our faith is supposed to get us to our faith. Would you categorize it that way? Yeah, uh, and I like the idea of understanding sometimes apologetics is just an exercise in critical thinking. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of what I think what I think I do when I talk to people apologetically is just teaching them how to think. Um, uh, what what is evidence? Is my favorite question to talk about. Mm. What what counts? And when you go down that rabbit hole, people expose a lot of ideas they had they hadn't thought of. Right. And it turns out when they start thinking about those things, um, the engaged mind is better prepared to interact with the gospel than the disengaged mind. Yeah, imagine Because that. what you end up with is you end up with a disengaged Christian who now is accepting Christianity in the same way he accepted the dogmas of sin and deceit, uh, which, while I appreciate they're on the other side of the camp now, uh, they're not actually participating in the life of Christ. They're, mm-hmm. They've accepted a new sense of, of dogma. Dogma is not a terrible word, but... Uh, I think you get what I'm saying. That, yeah. that it's just an, an unthinking, unprocessed life right. um, that's going to be very unintentional and unfruitful. Yeah. So I think apologetics teaches you how to think and to notice where in your life you've made assumptions that you haven't given over to a Christian worldview. Right. Um, why do I think that science takes the lead in this area? Or why mm-hmm. do I think that political theory is... Uh, that's the ultimate reality or economics. Well, then I know Christianity is great, but uh, capitalism says this or socialism says this is the way, you know, right. that, that there is some area where I've said Christianity doesn't work there. And in apologetics, I think forces you to slam into all of those and, and, right. and ask the tough and questions. And I think doing that on the other side of belief is immensely helpful when you're doing that. And so you're, you're saying I'm coming from a position already of trusting in Christ, yeah. believing what the Bible says. Now I'm trying to, apply it extensively. I'm trying to um, spread it into every area of what I think about yeah. life and 
And I agree with you. Critical thinking is is something that needs to be developed uh, among Christians, doctrinally, apologetically, philosophically. So I want to I want I want to do this. I want to while I've got you here, I just want to I want to play a little game of overrated, underrated. Oh. And what okay. I want to do is I want to throw out some um, apologetic terms, some people. Uh, kind of your common stuff, and I want you to tell us: Are they is it overrated oh or is it underrated? What so, if I don't know what it is. <laughs> um, let's start out. Let's start out with a, a, a really common one, okay. and that would be uh, the arguments for God's existence. So we okay. got, and we can even break them down individually. But okay. you know, you, the, the standard thing when you think apologetics is cosmological argument, mm-hmm. teleological argument, and the the ontological argument. I, I I personally think of Louis Giglio talking about galaxies, but that might just be me and like how many there are and how amazing yeah, God is. But yeah. but uh, I think probably for a lot of people, that's the first thing you think of when you think of apologetics is the arguments for God ex- God's existence, overrated or underrated. Ah, okay. So I'm a plan to command on that that uh, they are not. There are none of them that are impenetrable. Okay, uh, if you want to jab a hole in them, you can. You cannot compel belief with reason. It's not possible. even even the Kalam cosmology. Oh, even the Kalam, it's it's such a thing of beauty. But if you want to run from it into absurdity, you know the fallen human mind will let you. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the, the Kalam, You know, all science, all good science is cosmology, and I'm I'm a big fan of the cosmological argument, but. Even that one is as airtight as I feel like it is. If you just don't want it, listen. People met the resurrected Jesus, and mm-hmm. yet the whole world isn't a Christian yet. So, right. apparently, you can't compel belief in I, that it, way. There's that. This, this, this always just keeps me humble about apologetics. Is when so in the end of in the end of Matthew, where you know it says that he rose and all of that, yeah. and right at the very end, it's like and many believed. But some doubt it. <laughs> You're just like, there's a dead man walking around world. eating fish and chips by the Sea of Tiberias, yeah. and you're not convinced. And some doubt it. Yeah. You know? And, it's like, and we all they, laugh in the yeah. rich man and Lazarus when, when he says, though one go from the dead, you know, they'll not be persuaded. And yeah. you're like, yeah, whatever. I'd believe. No, you wouldn't. No, he's the same yeah. as they are. So it does... It does remind you of the frailty of the human mind when it comes to belief. but So the, the, the proofs for God exist is a little bit overrated. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'd say cosmological uh, probably a little overrated. I think the, the design argument is overrated in the sense that the examples we use to illustrate design seem to be a dime a dozen and always changing. Mm-hmm. I mean, that some of the, the some of the classic all you have to do is pick up the next Richard Dawkins book and find out why he doesn't think that's designed, and yeah. now I'm back to the drawing board, or I have to double down. I mean, right. either you are in awe of the majesty of creation, or you're not. I don't know if I can compel all. You know, right? Even with the dials, may my even, dial even argument, if we, even, even the, if we the fine-tuning the argument. Fine-tuning. I mean, if you will. If you will take a statistics class and come talk to me, uh, we're going to have a probability discussion, and you're going to have a hard time with the fine-tuning argument. Anthony Falou did, and uh, it was hard to get around. Yeah. But, yeah, if, uh, there are people out there that have heard it and said, well, yeah. maybe if we have a multitude of universes and enough dials. There's always can, an excuse. Yeah. There's always an excuse. Okay, how about the uh, new atheism? Four horsemen of atheism, Dawkins... <sighs> Hitchens, Harris, and Dent. Well, okay, intellectually, vastly overrated. They have uh, mastered rhetoric, I think, uh, rhetorically underrated. We've not given them credit for their persuasive power. Sure. Uh, we've acted like, you know, by... We thought that we were still arguing with Hume, and that if, if we made logical arguments, then we would carry the day. And Hitchens just yelled at us and called us mean names and won. Yeah. <laughs> it was a different game altogether. Well, I think they did discover the power of rhetorical force yeah. in apologetics far before a lot of Christian apologists. I mean, if you ever watched, um, I'm trying to remember, one of the best debates I ever saw was, I, I believe it was John Lennox, who I love. Yeah, I love Mathematician. I mean, just as sharp as they you come. You love Linux, yeah. And uh, he's debating Daniel Dennett. Yeah. And I mean, it, the, the combined IQ in that room is just <laughs> you know, unbelievable. It's like four digits. Yeah. But Dennett <laughs> understands that some people don't believe in God because they're angry. Yeah. Because they hate God. And 
capturing that, the rhetorical force in that in that debate, while well, I would say Linux ran circles around him yeah. intellectually. Um, and the same is true whenever you see Sam Harris talk, whenever you see you know Hitchens and obviously Hitchens, you get Hitchens talk about Abraham and offering Isaac, and the game's over because yeah. he he is as powerful as your favorite turn of the last century fundamentalist revivalist. Absolutely, he has that same force with the same story, rooting for the opposite team. Exactly, and that that's a challenge. That that part of it's underrated intellectually. Yeah. Uh, when people come to me and say, "Oh, this is really, really good science and tough stuff and real logical," I, you know, yeah, barf because it's it's the opposite of that. Yeah, but compelling apparently. Yeah, uh, William Lane Craig. Mm. Oh, in in which field? <laughs> yeah. I mean. uh, so his capacity to interact with science is once in a generation. I mean, mm. to have the. I think I think his single greatest contribution to Christianity has been the width of material he can interact with. Mm. That he's got ideas on the Kalam. He started out on the resurrection. He's yeah. interacted with his stuff on aseity. He's had to deal with number theory. He's got a, a theory of time. He yeah. knows how to talk cosmology, relativity, and quantum mechanics. And he can do it all in German or English. At, you right. know, at the drop of a hat. That is simply incredible, and to remain more, more or less, kind of mainstream evangelical while doing right. that, right? I mean, he's um, at the end of the day, he's going to tell you that he's convicted by the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit, right? So, I mean, all of that, I think that is just an incredible width of, of human knowledge that he could put on display, uh, and he's very incisive in that. Um, as a public speaker, leaves a lot to be decided. <laughs> he should take a homiletics class or two. Yeah, he, he's very clean in his his presentation, yeah. but it's uh, very uh, rigid, and I I don't enjoy his debates. I like yeah. to read the transcripts of his debates. Yeah, <laughs> I don't I like love, to watch. I, them. I do like to read him. I don't yeah. really like to listen to him. But you're right. I mean, just a once in a generation intellect. Yeah. Um, overrated, underrated interfaith dialogue. Interfaith. I'm going to say overrated. Yeah, I think I am. I'm going to say overrated. Yeah. I I I have not seen. First of all, I haven't seen interfaith dialogue. I have seen a particular brand of Christianity interacting with a particular brand of other religions. Hmm. I have not seen actual Orthodox Christianity meaningfully interact with Orthodox Islam or Orthodox hmm. Judaism. Yeah. That you don't have the Pope and the Imam and uh, the synagogue leader all sitting down with you know the rabbi and talking together. That what you have is the liberal Harvard professor who doesn't believe in the virgin birth anyway, talking to the liberal Muslim who doesn't believe in the Quran, talking to the liberal Jewish person who doesn't believe in God. And they're all conversing, and it turns out, hey, we don't, we, we all don't believe in the same things. And, yeah. and that, to me, doesn't really... It, it's a great human experience. It's you know wonderful that we can live in a liberal country where you can do things like that. But as far as actually promoting um, some consensus on theology, yeah, uh, hadn't seen it. I'll tell you when I lost lost faith in, uh, in like you mentioned, maybe maybe um, in an ideal world this this could work, but but uh, pragmatically when I lost faith in, in interfaith dialogue, uh, so I was asked by some student group at, at OC to come and be on a panel of multiple religions to talk amongst each other and answer yeah. these questions. So naturally I did uh, what any sane person would do. I took the guy who was working for me at the time doing college ministry and told him, this would be a great opportunity for your development if you would sit on this panel. And then I went and watched him do it. Um, and so Zach Warhan actually was on the panel and I was sitting there watching and we talked through, you know, some stuff and he did a, he did a great job. He, he you know, spoke clearly on the issues he represented the church well, but so on the panel, it was him. I guess he was kind of the Orthodox Christian guy. They had that poor guy. A, yeah, <laughs> he's going to get picked on. They had an atheist, kind of an angry atheist. Former, because what you want in interfaith, interfaith dialogue <laughs> is a person with no faith. Somebody who claims to have no faith. Okay. Then, then we had a kind of. I mean, uh, like Deepak Chopra light, you know, kind oh, of dear. just a spiritualist. And then we had a Muslim. So 
they ask the question. So they go through like 12 questions. And one of the questions is, how does your faith view women? So, uh, of course, Zach is like, well, Christianity, I think, can be credited with elevating women in the ancient world to a level never seen before. Oh, and, um, you know, and, and, and like, <laughs> the, the story this, this, this is really good for yeah. women. We treat women well, uh-huh. you know, all this stuff. Of course, the atheist, you know, says that atheists are the ones responsible for this because every religion has oppressed them. And anyway, <laughs> so we get to the Muslim and I'm like, I think I know where this is going probably mm-hmm. knowing a thing or two about Muslims. Of course, there's a wide variety of Muslims and the one that was selected to sit on this panel was a Muslim woman who was wearing a t-shirt and yoga pants. <laughs> and I'm sitting there thinking, what about this is even remotely close yeah. to orthodox, you know, kind of middle of the fairway Islam. Right. And she says, I've been a Muslim for my entire life. I've always felt empowered. I've always felt that I've been treated well. I've always felt that Islam is, is a religion that respects women. And I, at that moment, I just thought, I, I'm kind of out on interfaith dialogue at this point. Yeah. If you're, if the, and, and I'm not picking on Muslims, but it's yeah. like an American Muslim who obviously is not practicing. There are some very meaningful debates going on in the world right now about Muslim women, what they can wear, what they can't wear, what if it should yeah. be enforced or not. And here, here we have someone who didn't even bring that into the conversation, <laughs> yeah. but has always felt respected as a Muslim woman. Yeah. It, interfaith dialogue is only important if you get really genuine, meaty representations yeah, of... That's it of the faith and I just don't think that's what you get I'm, I'm teaching a Saturday morning class right now on world religion and that's the conversation we keep having is who speaks for Islam who speaks for Judaism today who speaks for Christianity it would be just as silly to say um, you're a Christian so you follow the Pope right Yeah. I mean it's that yeah. kind of broad brush uh, and instead when you just pull somebody out of a hat you get a lot of outliers and who do they speak for um in the same way, I mean, if you're going to claim that ISIS doesn't speak for Islam, and I don't think it does, then you also can't say that the pacifist yuppie uh, Islamic American speaks for Islam. Exactly. That exactly. It's, it's just more complicated than that. Right. In the same way of Christianity. Yeah, so. absolutely. Absolutely. So we're going to go with really overrated. Oh, my lands. Really, yeah. really overrated on that yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, last one. Overrated, underrated. When it comes to apologetics, uh, Christian, Christian atheist debates. Uh, well, that's a tough one. Christian atheist debates. There are some masters that do a great job. So any debate with Linux in it, I'm going to watch, you know, I find that beneficial. Uh, he's going to make the, the atheist laugh before it's done Mm -hmm. because he is just one of those guys and models good discussion. You know, yeah. so for that, great. As a tool, like, do I think I'm going to have an atheist and a Christian in my local gymnasium, and they're going to debate, and we're going to convert people? The answer is no, and yeah. I, I don't see it happening uh, because uh, the current culture of the American mind is very cynical and untrusting, and relationships are essential to persuasion. There may be moments in history, in fact, I'm quite convinced there are moments in history where that's not true, where a, a crusade approach, or by crusade, I mean not medieval, but more like Billy Graham, <laughs> a crusade approach, a like the big tent revival, great awakening yeah, approach, absolutely. let's put up a tent and see what happens. Actually, you can catch the mood of a nation and things can happen. Sure. And that, that does happen, but we're not in that mood. We're in a mm-hmm. distrusting, cynical mood. We're cynical about politics. We're cynical about people around us. And, yeah, we're cynical about religious people. So just getting up and making really good arguments is not ultimately persuasive. I think you can make some of those same arguments over the dinner table with your friend and actually do more good, even though you won't present them as well. Uh, yeah. I You know, that's where I, I kind of want to land the plane on apologetics is – I think apologetics is useful. I think it's worth learning. I think it's worth studying. I think whatever camp you know you want to be in on, on apologetics, I think it's worthwhile to learn. And I think 
the best use of apologetics is to sit down across the table with someone you know, with someone that you love, whether or not they're a Christian or, or, or what situation you're in, and just talk about why you believe. Yeah. What, what it is that you find compelling about Christ, about following him, about trusting him. And if, if they're a scientific person and that takes a scientific bent, great. great. If that's a where do we even get meaning in the world conversation, yeah. great. I really think at the end of the day when you sit down and you begin, and you need to have done your homework, you need to have read, you need to have studied, but when you begin to talk about why you believe, why they should believe, and you blend apologetics and evangelism or you're troubleshooting something in, in someone's faith, you're walking through a difficult season together, that's when you see apologetics at its absolute best. It has the capacity to find out what someone cares about and then show them how to connect the dots from that to Christ. Where it's at its worst is when we tell them what they should care about and what should persuade them and then try to make that bridge. And it, it just never works. Uh, so if you take the argument to someone, here, let me give you some science, that's not persuasive. Mm-hmm. But if you let them tell you, and people will, if they talk long enough, they will tell you what matters. Um, do you believe in beauty? Do you believe in morality? Do you care about your kids? Do you care about your neighborhood? Do you care about anything? Mm-hmm. They're going to tell you something. And there's a line straight from there to the heart of God. If it's of any value whatsoever, uh, it connects to our Lord. And that's the strength that apologetics has. Um, and that's certainly true in my life. I, for me, now this may sound crazy, but I do apologetics for me. Hmm. Like I find, and I know what kind of a weird person this makes me, but I find devotional value when I'm sitting and reading about the ontological argument. Mm-hmm. I draw closer to God and it's, it cracks me up because professors, and I just sat through a class, and the professors are you know, quick to emphasize, now, folks, your reading for class is not the same as your devotional reading. Mm-hmm. And I get that probably for 99% of the people out there, that's true. Like, there's yeah. things I'm forced to read and then things I read to be closer to God. For me, apologetic, deep thinking, critical thinking draws me closer to God because that's a part of me that he can master and bring me closer to him. And so I think apologetics has that power of helping to find what is it that matters to this person, where in their life it may be. It may be the creative apologetics of C.S. Lewis, or it may be um, historical, like N.T. Wright's resurrection stuff, Mm -hmm. or it may be a theory of time and William Lane Craig. But you find the thing that really pushes the buttons and connects with them. There is a straight line from there to the gospel. And then once you get pointed that way, God does all the work. You get out of the way. But just having that avenue opening is great. Okay, so one of the things that I've always really enjoyed about our friendship, and um, it's kind of interesting. So when we first met, I was a fish out of water. Mm. It, I was a theological mutt in every sense of the word uh, at a Church of Christ school. And it was like, in my background, I had been Presbyterian. I'd gone to Episcopalian school. I had been a member of a non- non-denominational church. I'd worked at a Southern Baptist church. And all of a sudden, now I find myself in the middle of a Church of Christ seminary. And you were one of those people that took me under your wing as an insider. And, uh, well, I was trying to make a candlelight of you, but... Uh, no. <laughs> kept, kept me from being uh, run over by uh, angry candlelights. And not not upsetting the apple cart too much right, right. while I was there. Now it's fun for me to see you as the guy who's a little bit of a fish out of water, being the Church of Christ minister who's now going to a Baptist seminary. It became very clear to me that I'm not Baptist at this particular yes, week. I'm yes. like, oh, yeah, I'm not you people, am I? Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think that's always been kind of a fun thing for us. I know yeah. I've learned a ton from you kind of exploring from the outside what what is the Restorationist movement. Of course, I came in with some preconceived notions about what Church of Christ was, had those blown up, rethought, uh, kind of synthesized a lot of that, trying to you know, understand. And now I feel like way more than I did, then I do understand to an extent why you guys believe some of the things that you believe. And I still don't agree with you on a lot of those things. You told me a story one time about you being at a conference somewhere and someone was ranting about 
Church of Christ views of baptism being unorthodox, and you end up kind of defending the uh, Church of Christ position on baptism. And you tell me the story, and I'm like, yay, friendship works. <laughs> you know, people understand. You didn't even necessarily agree with, but you understood, right? And were able to reproduce it against the caricature that that was present in that conversation. I think right. that's great. Uh, for me, uh, you're. I, I can never imagine a time when I thought I could imagine a time where I understood anything about limited atonement. To me, there was nothing more foreign from the gospel than some kind of definitive atonement theory. Uh, that notion, uh, I, now at least there is a coherence to it, and I can say, okay, well, I guess you guys aren't, you know burning in the lake of fire right now. I mean, you know, <laughs> yeah. that, that there's something about that that is sensible. I can I can get the coherence of it. And that's been so important to me to understand uh, even my own views. I mean, I I didn't know I was Wesleyan until I met you. Mm-hmm. And that, that was not, I'd never cared about Wesley. No, I'm reading a book on Wesley and I'm like, oh, oh, that's what I am. Yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. That's, that's, <laughs> of course I am. Yeah, that makes sense. So yeah, it, it does help you define your views to have friends that are outside of your views and mm-hmm. run towards them. I mean, yeah, and, and we do that with books. I mean, oh, absolutely. Yeah, you I, can't just read one tradition of books, or you're going to be you're going to run out of books pretty soon. My favorite books are the ones that I don't agree with. Mm-hmm. I mean, that they they shape you and challenge you, and you know your your views will all be there when you're done. Mm-hmm. Uh, just set them on the table for a minute and read what the person has to say and go back to them. Right. Try and get the best version of what they're saying, understand it, get inside it, look around. One of the things that excites me about this whole blog project is the idea of a steel man principle of mm-hmm. putting forward the best case argument for what we're trying to deal with. And that it, it's a world of difference. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Uh, so I want to talk about how do we put a framework on disagreement within the church. So obviously, I'm not Church of Christ, but knowing you has helped me appreciate the value in the Church of Christ without watering down at the same time that there are differences in belief. Meaningful differences. I mean, so, they're not even... I think some people think that if you're going to get along, you find out your differences were all superficial. Some of them right. are actually deep. I mean, Very substantial. Yeah. And, and so I, I think what you have to come to grips with is there are certain differences that are okay. Yeah. They're there. They're meaningful. You can agree to disagree. You can both be Christians. And there are differences that it's not okay yeah. to agree to disagree. You, you've got to believe this to be a Christian. And so you can draw some pretty meaningful lines. I, I want to maybe lay out at least a first attempt on how do we draw those lines. And one of the things I thought is the most most helpful model over the years is Moeller's triage. So yep. essentially, and I'm going to, I'm going to paraphrase this and he's talking about the way that we kind of appropriate theological issues in our relationship to the culture. I want to talk about it just in terms of the church. Yeah. And so essentially you have concentric circles and in the middle circle, you have gospel issues. These are things that you have to believe to be a Christian. Then one circle out from that, you have second order issues. Mm -hmm. And the way I would at least define this, and this is going a little bit beyond Moeller, but the way I would define this is these are issues that you believe there is a right answer scripturally, and it's worth arguing about. Yes. Third circle, third order issues, would be these are things that there may be a right answer scripturally. It may be a matter of wisdom. It's not really worth it to even argue about mm-hmm. for me. So let's just take that as a model and say, where do we start to draw lines around who, who's, I don't want to just say who's in and who's out, but when it comes to things like partnerships, when it comes to yeah. things like, you know, being in a church service together versus being at a seminary together, um, studying together, who can you learn from? Uh, all the way to who can you partner with as a church or as a denomination? or yeah. Where would you start to draw some of those lines? Well, so, so we start with the text. And the first kind of rattle my brain thing that I noticed in the text was that the text does delineate between concepts. Paul says the resurrection was delivered as of first importance. Uh, Jesus was asked, what's the most important commandment? And he didn't respond, hey, they're all equally important. Right. He said, well, okay, yeah, actually, these two, that's that's the big deal. And that's not to say, no, the rest of it was important, just that these two were first. And that means something 
something was second place. It, right. it wasn't unimportant. Nothing in the Bible is unimportant, but some of it is less important and some of it's more. Mm-hmm. And that recognition is a pretty nuanced idea to get your head around, but I think you're forced to it. Um, none of it's inconsequential. Some of it's less consequential. Right. So uh, from there, yeah, I do, I do think you start and you look for, um, this is the, the scientist in me, you start counting words. I mean, you, you read the text and you say, what comes up a lot? Mm-hmm. Uh, you, when you read, so I, you know, my method of preaching, I do a, a lectionary three-year cycle. Um, if you can go through three years of preaching the Bible and this topic never comes up, apparently it wasn't a big deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you had to hunt for a way to preach on that topic, yeah, that has to be on the outskirts. On the other hand, if every week you're having to dodge that topic, apparently it's important because the text right. keeps flinging it at you. Uh, so that's a that's a good hint. You know, count count verses. So sure. If nothing else, tabulate yeah. it. At least to make your priorities mirror the priorities that you're seeing in Scripture. Yeah. Um, obviously, I don't the, know if I can prove that's you know a definitive principle, but it seems fair to say that my priorities should mirror the shape of canon. Yeah, uh, I think that seems fair. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it, just on an obvious level that this. The canon is shaped around the centrality of the person and work of Jesus Christ. I mean, it's yeah. just undeniable. If you read the Bible, that's what it's about. Jesus seemed to think so. Yeah. <laughs> he, and, he and several other important people seem to think that that was the case. Yeah. So I, I think, obviously, we want to put the person and work of Jesus Christ at the very center of what we think um, it means to examine different religious traditions. Obviously, we think in order to be a Christian in the first place, mm-hmm. you've got to believe certain things about who Jesus was, what he came to do, what he has to do with you. And what, whatever term we want to put on that, um, I would probably say justification by faith is one of those central, first order, you must believe this to be a Christian. You must believe that you're not justified by your own works, you're justified by Jesus Christ dying for your sins on the cross by putting your trust in him you've been united with him and that you'll you know return to him when he comes back for us in the end I mean yeah. it, it, this is creedal stuff this is this yeah. is very primitive Christian doctrine I think there's some of those things we definitely need to affirm and I do think there's room for disagreement on how that plays out I mean I can I can hear two Christians say justification by faith and mean very different things by certainly uh, but to be able to affirm it. Uh, a, a fun story from the histories of Churches of Christ for a minute. Uh, back in the debating days, uh, Foy Wallace, uh, my dad's hero, uh, was debating, uh, I don't know, may have been Bogart or one of the great Baptist debaters of yesteryear, on baptism. And in his first affirmative, he only covered passages on justification by faith. Hmm. And then at the end of his speech, read one verse about baptism and says, that is justification by faith. And so you had two guys who were clearly reading the same verses Uh and saying very different things about what it meant. So absolutely, the affirmation has to be there. And then we should get in a room and fight about what it means the <laughs> because it matters. Yeah, yeah. the clarification it really does matter. matters too. But the affirmation of this, the centrality of faith in Christ, I don't, I don't know how you can get around that. So if we put that in the middle, faith in Christ, exclusivity of Christ, you know, the things that relate to Christ's humanity, his divinity, and, and of course those are things that require a lot of explanation. If you just look yeah. at the history of the church, those are some of the things that were probably the most difficult to really get the language and that's what I mean affirmation I think you have to make the affirmation not always with understanding sure I I, I don't expect every Christian to have a knowledge of hypostatic union I I do expect them to make an affirmation of something right and that's sufficient that's a great way to put it so if you start there and you begin to move out into some second order issues so you and I don't agree on some second order issues that doesn't keep me from thinking that you're a Christian, that you think I'm a Christian. Mm-hmm. Um, and even some of these issues, and, I, and this is where I think it gets really interesting, that would probably keep us from from pastoring a church together. Yeah, I don't think you and I issues. should go into work together like in that context because you would have to just immediately ask the question, what would we do on day one, right? I mean, right. Uh, at some point, maybe the definitive experience for a group of Christians is worshiping on Sunday morning. Mm-hmm. And if you can't decide what you're going to do on Sunday morning, 
those first six days you were together as a church didn't matter right. much, right? Right. And so I think as a practical issue, churches have to be realistic about that and say these have to be a people who have a common set of convictions about praxis. I mean, mm-hmm. maybe not every element of practice, but at least something. I think, what are you going to do Sunday morning? Right. Uh, what does it mean to be a member of this group of people? Um, Baptism is going to come up. I mean, right. that's somewhere a practice. As I mentioned, I was at a Baptist college this week and, and was listening in on some fun conversations about the connection of baptism and membership mm-hmm. and listening to that conversation play out from a different point of view that I'm used to. Right. And it was interesting. At some point, you got to answer that question for yeah. this group of people to exist. Yep. And while you might be able to say that group of people over there that do it differently still share the same first order beliefs. Right. There's no practical way that those people could sit down together and worship. And that's where I would make a defense, at least a limited defense, on multiple congregations, multiple models, even multiple denominations. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, I wouldn't, I would not make an argument for the kind of nasty splits that have produced yeah. a lot of the denominations um, if you go back up the tree far enough. Yeah. But but I would say I think it's naive to think that if we all would just be in house churches and not take doctrine very seriously, that everybody would get along and you could just mix and match churches all yeah. the time. I, there are substantive differences, yeah. and a lot of them you can be a Christian and you can be convinced that you're right and still be okay with the fact that there's another congregation down the road that's doing something very different that is yeah. full of Christians. And, and at the same time, and probably what's even more taboo than that today, and believe that there's another church down the road <laughs> who claims to be Christian who you don't think are actually Christians. Yeah. That, that, yeah. that you, can take your, you can take your differences seriously enough to say, no, there are some lines you cannot cross. Yeah. But also understand, you know what? There are some things kind of up in the air here that I'm, I'm pretty convinced on, but is it going to stop you from being a Christian? That's right. I, I, yeah, I think that's I think that's fair. That I, I do think we are kind of pushed into this debate between you got to either accept absolute pluralism of all ideas being acceptable, or the singular radical uh, just just me and you, and I'm not sure about you kind of view yeah. of Christianity. <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and that's neither one of those I think is biblical. Yeah, you do have to take doctrine seriously. If if the New Testament letters to uh, Timothy and Titus teaches anything. It's the significance of teaching and doctrine, and it matters. Yeah, um, it matters to the formation of a congregation. It matters to Christian life. It, it's unavoidable. Um, so there do have to be some hedges, uh, if you want to call it that, uh, that we we use both to distinguish between Orthodox Christianity and not. Right. And then between, on the practical level, uh, yeah. the the individual practices of churches and associations. Um, I think so, so. My particular church heritage comes out of a moment of the worst kind of nastiness in denominationalism, and so we said we're just not going to be one of those. Mm-hmm. We won't do that. Um, the danger of that was, and in, in you're almost tempted to become now a new version of that. Right. We're, we're going to be the not denomination, not denomination. If you're not careful, that's yeah. exactly what you become. That's true. And that's that's the struggle. I mean, the the non-denominational movement in the current era is almost a, a, an entity to itself. It right? is, yeah. Uh, so that, that happens, and that's, that's a danger we, we live with. But what I try to remind our folks, and it's a difficult story to live out the heritage, but our heritage is a beautiful one. Uh, the Cane Ridge Revival and, and Barton Stone, and what happened was they're having this beautiful moment where the gospel's being preached and people are coming to it, and guess what? It's Sunday. And what do we do now? That's mm-hmm. the very question we're talking about. And Stone and the others, you got Presbyterians, you got Methodists, you got people doing open communion, close communion, closed communion. Right. And uh, Stone says, let's just do communion for everybody. Yeah. Let's just offer communion because that's what Christians do. And then let's just let's go on and do what we do on Sunday. Yeah. And that moment was this beautiful moment where it doesn't have to be like the way it was. Mm-hmm. That we could recognize similarities. And that doesn't mean everybody agreed the next day. Right. But uh, they all took communion. Right. And, and somehow survived. You know, yeah. the West didn't fall. Uh, yeah, that's a good out. story. And, and when you, I mean, there's a lot of value in looking back on where, how you got to the place that you are now. And, and um, some of them were obviously rebelling against certain things. Some of them were combining certain things. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you know, in, in some of the mainline denominations in America, it was because they were all 
trying to flee from a common persecutor. Yeah. Um, and, they, and they came here. But, you but know, who I, taught Charles Spurgeon about baptism? It was an Anglican priest. Yeah. I was told that story the other day. Just just finally heard that. I thought, oh, how remarkable. You know, they, right. not somebody he agreed with, even on that topic, right. convinced him he needed to be baptized and that his infant baptism wasn't sufficient. A priest who practiced infant baptism convinced, convinced him of that. Yeah. Now, it, it's a remarkable story. It's an amazing you know? story. And one of the things I'm really interested in today is, you know, Christians... Obviously, there are reasons for infighting, and of course, I love a good uh, a good debate as much as the next guy. But as soon as this microphone goes off, we're having one. Yeah, yeah. But there's a there's a role for coalition. There's a role for being on the same team, um, even broad coalitions. I mean, I even think on on, on social issues of, of certain kinds. Yes. I don't even think you have to band just with Christians, but but when you look at things like the Gospel Coalition, when you look at church playing networks like Arc. When you look at Together for the Gospel, you have Baptists, you have Presbyterians, you have some Lutherans, you've got Anglicans, uh, all standing on the same stage, preaching the same gospel, and vehemently disagreeing about very important theological issues. And I think that the more we have a vision for that, like you said, not being naive to the differences. Right. But not dying on every single theological hill, we can really accomplish a lot. I think it starts by identifying the enemy. Uh, And I know that's a weird thing to say, but uh, in in the Bible we read about there's us in the world. And Mm -hmm. it's very easy to start looking at people outside your church doors in other churches as the world. Mm -hmm. And that wouldn't have been the way Paul viewed it because it didn't exist, for one thing. Uh, It didn't have that kind of familiarity to have versions of Christianity down the street. But uh, when you start thinking about what is the enemy, is the enemy the people making an earnest attempt fallibly to practice Christianity down the street? Or is it... uh, evil in the world that is rearing its head, and by the way, uh, gaining ground some days. Right. Um, I'm not a defeatist. I do think God wins. But uh, there are days where, you know, that scale tips a little, and we should notice. Um, You and I are Tolkien fans, and so some days elves and men and dwarfs have to stand at the gates of Mordor and fight the bad guys. Right. You know, and and, hey, when it's all over, I'm still a dwarf, and you're still an elf, and we don't have to get along. But those guys are going to kill everybody, right? Right. There is real evil in the world, and maybe we have to notice that. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.